Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. Please take caution when listening to this episode as we discuss sexual violence and some listeners may find this upsetting. This episode focuses on Dr. Jessica Taylor and her work in victim blaming, sexual violence and other work surrounding this subject matter. Although Dr. Taylor herself has experienced sexual abuse and has even had a child as a result of rape, her life's mission is to help others going through similar situations. Her work is motivated by wanting more people to understand the truths behind sexual violence and how societal norms can lead people to be confused about what consent really is. This eye-opening discussion has certainly helped me become more aware and I hope that it does for you all too. Jessica, thanks for joining me today. I've been looking forward to, to talking to you. And for the sake of my audience, who am I talking to? How would you describe yourself, Dr. Jessica Taylor? I guess I would describe myself as a psychologist and I specialise in the psychology of victim blame and trauma and violence, uh, primarily committed towards women and children. And I am the director of Victim Focus, which is a, a company that I run that works all over the world to challenge the way that systems, governments, authorities, charities, schools, I guess, construct and describe and work with victims of crime. Victims of crime. And is that any sort of crime? I mean, I often have, I say often, I have had people on the programme who have been convicted of offences, perpetrators, um, remorseful. So you work with the complete opposite. You're working with, you know, those perpetrators can also be seen as victims. You know, it may be that they experience traumatic 
times in their life which drove their criminal behavior it might just be because they come from disadvantaged backgrounds that they believe what they did was to survive so do you work with just the victims as in they've never been convicted of a crime or victims as in ex-offenders so we specialize in victims of sexual offenses and domestic violence offenses human trafficking offenses uh, modern slavery offences and child sexual abuse offences. So they're quite, it's quite a specific set of offences. So we wouldn't, uh, we don't do any work or broader work with, for example, victims of common assault or uh, burglary or robbery or, you know, drug offences or anything like that. It's very specifically around sexual violence and domestic violence and then interpersonal violence um, that we describe as male violence because the, the majority of those crimes are committed by men. How did you get involved in becoming a, am I right in saying a forensic psychologist? Yeah, I actually didn't necessarily choose. I didn't sort of think, oh, when I grow up, I'm going to be a forensic psychologist. I didn't finish high school. I didn't have any qualifications. I didn't go to university or anything like that to begin with. And I became interested because I'd had two children before 19 and so I had the the two kids and, um, you know, I was very bright at school, but I hadn't finished school and stuff like that. And I just I remember after I'd had the second one and I think I might have been 20, like coming up for 20, might have still been 19. I remember thinking I want to do something with my life and I don't really know what. And then um, when I was pregnant with the second child, I had a stroke. Um, and that was pretty scary. And it meant that I lost some peripheral vision and I struggled with reading and writing and I struggled with um, mobility and stuff for a while whilst I was getting better. And I remember sitting in bed and thinking, how is it, like, how have you ended up in this life? Like you're really unwell. You've not, you know, you're not able to work. You've got the two kids. What are you going to do? And I remember thinking, well, maybe I could volunteer my time. Maybe I could like help people somehow. I didn't really know how. I didn't have any qualifications or anything. And I decided to get in touch with the local volunteer centre and say that I had some spare time, you know, every now and then. I was pretty busy because I had the kids, but I thought, well, you know, I could maybe do something. So I contacted them and said that I had some spare time. And they said that the only opening they had uh, at the time was victim support. And I didn't know anything about victim support as an organization or anything like that. And they told me that I would be working in courtrooms, supporting victims of all different forms of crime to support them and prepare them for giving evidence on the day. And I just thought, wow, that sounds really interesting. I never would have thought I could ever do anything like that. It was a completely voluntary role, but they provided an immense amount of training. So I was really interested in that. And um, that's pretty much where it started for me was that um, I did, did all my training and then I went to volunteer in a magistrate's court in the UK. And um, my day was a Friday, a Friday afternoon and, a Friday, and sometimes a Friday morning. And that happened to be what they call DV court, which is the day that they process domestic violence offences. Um, and either commit them up to Crown Court because they're too serious to remain in a magistrate's court or that they remain for trial in the magistrate's court. So that was where I started. And so my job really was to, you know, primarily support women and girls who were uh, victims of domestic violence offences every week. And, 
yeah, I think my career just went from there, really. A job came up at the core. I'd been there maybe like mm, six months or eight months or something. And a job came up as an assistant manager for the court and I was 20. And I was like, I'm, I am the type of person that's like in for a penny, in for a pound. I'll have a go at anything. So even though I didn't really think I would get it, I applied and I told them why I wanted it. And I got offered an interview and then I got given the job and I was blown away. I couldn't believe that I was given the assistant manager job of this uh, magistrate's court. I had that job for about a year and then I got headhunted for a um, area manager job in the criminal justice system when I was 21 and went to manage two crown courts and five magistrates courts for the whole vulnerable and intimidated witness program. I had 51 court staff Um, and around like those times I saw an advert on the TV for the Open University um, and decided that I could maybe try and go to university because I was I knew that I was bright enough, but I'd never had the opportunity before. I didn't have any A-levels, didn't have any way of getting into a university. So um, I decided to apply to the Open University to do a degree in psychology to see if I could do it. Uh, and then I did that. So I was working full time in the criminal justice system and I was studying at night and getting the kids to bed and studying on the weekend and it was a bit of a mishmash for a few years and then my I guess my career just grew and grew went and worked in human trafficking uh child sexual exploitation uh, managed rape centers and therapeutic services for men and women who've been subjected to sexual violence and then um worked in mental health for a period and then around that time started a phd in forensic psychology which is where i decided to specialize in the psychology of victim blaming so yeah it's been interesting it's been an interesting 12 years it sounds like you've achieved a, a phenomenal amount in in such a short space of time let's go back to the beginning now you've told me a, a, a potted history of of at least the last 10 years what kind of training does someone who has no experience get to go into that space and work with people who have experienced, in some cases, I suppose, the worst situations they will ever experience in their life? But what sort of training? Let's just talk about the training that someone like you gets to go into that space to help work with people who are going through a really challenging time. Mm. Yeah, so... I had several weeks of what they call core training, which is pretty much getting you up to speed with things that you don't even know exist, you know, like how does the criminal justice system work? How does a court work? What happens when a victim reports a crime? What rights does a victim have? What rights does a witness to a serious crime have? You know, what can you do to protect victims and witnesses in a case where they're being intimidated or uh, where they're scared of retaliation and things like that? So you go through the criminal justice type training and then you specialise in particular areas generally. So you do like long courses on domestic abuse and the um, victim's experiences, what it's like to be groomed, what it's like to be controlled and coerced, all the different ways that that might happen, but also the ways that the victim might experience that because lots of victims of domestic and sexual violence in childhood and in adulthood don't recognise that they are victims because of the way society positions that as a normal thing that happens. So, for example, Lots and lots of adults in the UK, one in five British adults say that they were abused in childhood in the British Crime Survey in London, Wales in 2017. So one in five is really high, but it's probably higher than that because for some people, they'll believe that their experience of being abused or hit or 
controlled in childhood was completely normal in their family. So you do a lot of training around understanding the normalization of different forms of abuse in our communities and in society so that you can help um, victims as best you can. I would say now looking back on it, and because I now write a lot of that training, I deliver a lot of national and international training and conferences on, on this topic, that the training could definitely be better. There are um, definitely services that get it right. And it's very in-depth, accredited, intense training uh, with a lot of reflection and assessment and supervision. And there are other sort of courses that I would say don't cut it and that they're very, you know, there's not a lot of critical thinking in them. There's quite a lot of bias in them and things like that. So I was really lucky that victim support has a very, very good reputation for accredited training. So I think I was lucky that that was my way in. Uh, I think the training that I got on the criminal justice system and the way it worked was excellent because part of my job was to give pretrial visits to explain what will happen as a victim and all the different rights that they have. And then it was my job to make sure that those rights were followed through. So if they wanted special measures, they wanted screens or they didn't want to come to court or they were, you know, worried about people identifying them. They're worried about, you know, retaliation or like, you know, can I have a private entrance and exit to the court in case someone, you know, sees me outside of the court? Uh, a lot of our work was with children. So children that were giving evidence uh, in very serious trials, you know, where the child would be very scared and things like that. So, yeah, the training I would say is variable in this field now, looking back on it. And now that I've worked with pretty much every organization in the country, I would say it's variable. I, I get that. Let, let me just pick up on a couple of things you said. And one of the things that struck me was your description of some of the victims who have gone through these traumatic experiences as it being you know, as a victim, they've normalized what is going on. Explain to me a little bit more so people understand what you mean by that, Jessica. The majority of people who've been subjected to crimes like sexual violence and domestic violence will never report. And one of the reasons for that, at the moment, the reporting rate sits at about 13% in the UK. One of the reasons for that is because the majority of victims of those crimes don't know that they are victims of those crimes. And you only find out sometimes by chance. So there was a study that was done in the UK in 2007, as an example, which asked thousands of people the words, have you ever been raped? And they could put yes or no. And then deliberately to test whether people understand what rape is, there were some filler questions. And then there was another question that said, have you ever been forced to have sex that you didn't consent to and you didn't want? And what was really interesting was that only 2% of the samples said they'd been raped, but 84% said they'd been forced to have sex that they didn't want or consent to. So what you have there wow. is, yeah, so what you have there is like, you have an immense amount of people who've actually been subjected to a rape or a sexual assault, but only 2% of them know what it is. So that is just an example of how many people in the population ne don't necessarily know what they have actually been subjected to. And it's the same with domestic violence in that when you, maybe if you've grown up always being gaslit and groomed and put down and, you know, told that you're worth nothing and, you know, told that you're stupid, you're ugly, you're fat, whatever it is that that abuser might have done, you can, you can, especially if you've had that from early childhood, 
you can think that that's how everybody should treat you um, and that that's normal. There's also a lot of norms in society around domestic violence and sexual violence that people romanticise. So I've written quite a lot about the romanticisation of uh, certain crimes, so things like stalking. So if you consider how normal it is for, let's say, rom-coms or chick flicks or whatever you want to call them, like romantic comedies, where the storyline is often, if you, I'm sorry, I'm going to ruin this for so many people. If you rewatch them, the storyline is usually a man who is interested in a woman and the woman's got a career or a, a, some independent thing that she's got going on. And then he's interested in her and she says no. And then the entire 90 minutes is him stalking her, sending her flowers, turning up at her workplace, going to her mum's house, you know, travelling across the world to catch her attention, turning up at the park with placards, playing the piano at somewhere. And it's like stalking really is what that is. And we know that that's a crime. And yet a lot of really famous films position that as true love if someone doesn't leave you alone no matter how many times you say no it's because they really 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 love you and they can't stop thinking about you but in actual fact in many countries in the world that is classed as harassment and stalking so even that as an example doesn't that depend jessica on on how that stalker or romantic individual is received by the person you know if the person I, I don't know. Is it? I, I'm thinking in those kind of romantic films, they're often depicted as, you know, they love the piano. They stand at the window and they listen to this guy playing the piano or guitar at the bottom of the window at like Romeo and Juliet. So isn't it really dependent on, on whether that person is reporting the behavior of that individual? I get what you mean, but surely it comes down to how the recipient, in this case, the woman is reacting to this, this overture of, of gifts and flowers and, and attention. Yeah. In a way, it does, in the sense that if she wants all those things and she hasn't said no several times, then then that's fine, isn't it? So it's like if she thinks that's awesome and, you know, she um, I don't know, she's walking to work and there's all these messages and she thinks, oh, this is so romantic. This is amazing. Then obviously that's not a crime. But if this is like the sixth time she's had to go, I'm not interested in you. Stop doing these things. Then it then it crosses that line, doesn't it? So. What's interesting in a lot of these films is that there are, there are often several points in the film where um, the the woman usually will be like, I'm not interested, I'm married, or I'm with this person, or you know, I've got this going on, or this job's really important to me. And it's sort of pushed in drama soaps films um, that, you know, if you just push hard enough, then eventually that person will realise that they that they love you and that they'll realise that what you were doing was not negative, it was actually positive. So we deal with that, you know, that's just one one example of normalisation in society. But there's so there's just so many. We have to deal with them quite a lot when we're educating children. Yeah, I, I, I just find it insightful that you, you talk about this normalisation that people don't know the, the difference between what's going on in their household and what's going on outside in other households. But surely with social media and their exposure to the sorts of things that we see on television regularly where people are challenging the sexualization or, or racism, whatever it is, we're, we're overly exposed to this, that there can't be that many people, or correct me if I'm wrong, you know, there can't be that many people that, that cannot realise that they are the subject of of sexual abuse or domestic violence. Um, it's what they do about it 
that that is is key. It's about giving them, I suspect, the confidence to go and report it. But like you say, very few people do report it because they they don't realize that they are a victim of it. Just tell me a little bit more about that in terms of the experiences that you've had. Is it really young people who, who wouldn't know because they are cocooned in a world where the predator may deprive them of that wider knowledge? I mean, what is it that denies that individual the knowledge? If you imagine them as hurdles, like as if you were sort of on a track and there was hurdles, the first hurdle is knowing you're being abused at all. Because if the grooming process has been effective and the perpetrator knows how to control you and how to, you know, sort of, I guess, groom the way you think about the offences, that it was your fault, you pushed their buttons or that you've made them stressed or that they didn't mean it or they can't remember it or this is normal or, you know, this happens in all um, households, you know, you're overreacting, those types of responses. A lot of... Uh, women and girls that I work with never get past that first hurdle because they genuinely believe that their relationships are normal and that that's how they would be treated in every relationship, even if they were to leave. And that is compounded by, so you you were just talking about, you know, they've got access to social media, we've got access to the internet, we've got, we've got you know, documentaries about these things, and that is true. But on the other hand, we know that we have incredible amounts of media that actually support things like abuse and domestic violence. So, for example, there was a study in 2011 that found that 46% of all soap storylines about rape and abuse feature the victim lying or lying about the experience, right? So that means that just under half of those soap storylines depict a victim who is lying about rape and sexual abuse rather than it being real. And then a further 34% of soap storylines that depict any form of rape or abuse depicted a victim who wanted it, who was like asking for it or was enjoying it in some way. So if you consider that these soaps have viewership of millions and millions of people, that's quite impactful. And then you've got normalisation with reality TV shows that a lot of young people watch about particular groups of young people between 18 and 30 that go out and drink and they live all in a house together and you know there's all these reality there's cameras on them and all the rest of it and they're dating each other having sex with each other getting drunk fighting having sex with no consent having sex when they're absolutely out of their minds and not remembering it the next day they're smashing houses up having arguments with each other they're kicking each other out of taxis they're manipulating each other and it's on reality tv as like entertainment and normal so we know that when we go into schools and do work with teenagers and you challenge some of that stuff. They're sort of like, what? That's normal. I did a piece in um, a school a few years ago where I simply put up statements on a board and asked teenagers. They were between, uh, I think they were 15 to 17, this group that I had. There was about 300 of them. And I asked them to just stand up if they agree with the statement and stay sitting down if you disagree. And the statement that I put up on the board was, if my partner truly loved me, they would let me have all their passwords to their social media and let me check their phone every day to prove that they're not cheating on me. And the amount of teenagers that stood up and was like, yeah, that's to- that's normal. That's a healthy, normal relationship. And I then had to construct discussions around that about saying to them, where have you learned that? What is that about? Like, why would you believe that you have to have all of your partner's social media passwords and check their phone every day to prove 
that they that you trust them because trust is supposed to be the absence of proof is that you trust somebody because you're in a relationship with them and it was incredible how defensive they were about those beliefs and even when i said to them real trust being in a healthy relationship with somebody does not mean that they should be able to go through your email accounts your social media accounts check who you're talking to you know read all your text messages ask you who you've been on the phone to and it was such an uncomfortable conversation because they did not believe me and they would say that that was completely normal. Everybody else was doing it and so on. So you've got all of this, these level, almost like multi levels of normalization that means that if they don't even know that what's happening to them is abusive or controlling, they'll never report anyway because what would they report? They've got nothing to report, have they? Because they don't know that anything is wrong. But I suppose um, my question is, is it wrong? I mean, young people in relationships fall in and out of love or in and out of relationships, whether that's, you know, that's an individual choice and, and a decision they make. Going back to, you know, your your comments about the TV programs and the reports dated back to 2011, we're now in 21. So hopefully in the last 10 years, a lot of those storylines I, I don't watch these programs, these reality programs. I'm not a soap opera type watcher in in the sense that these soaps that come on. So I don't know. But but little bits that I have seen is that it's often written that the storylines are written into these shows because they are trying to deliver a message to an audience that this is wrong or you need to consider these things. I mean, that's what I often see these storylines trying to reveal that, you know, the normalization of certain behaviors are wrong, or at least that's what they're doing today, whether they did it in 2011, when you reflect on these reports. But as time goes on, you know, what was happening 10 years ago, in the same way, the programs depicted race and sexual orientation etc all that has changed now in the same way that you have gay relationships on television which you didn't have and wouldn't have had many years ago as we develop as a society as a culture things do change so what's your underlining concerns or message when you see these things I actually don't think they've changed at all. I think that what has happened, because I do a lot of consultancy on media, so I do a lot of TV and radio, but also a lot of people that are writing scripts for drama, film and TV contact me for advice. And I can honestly say that a lot of it is tokenistic. They know that people are talking about sexual violence in society, so they know to write it into their plot lines because it gets more viewers. Um, If you consider how many just rapes for no reason were in things like Game of Thrones and were in certain films that came out in the last couple of years where there had been huge backlash from people who had gone to see a film and that female characters were just being raped for no reason in the plot line. Like, why is that happening? If, you know, that's not for a useful reason. There's no purpose to that. We also know that, you know, from research in 2016, 2017, headlines and media generally about sexual and domestic violence are terrible. We also know that it increases the amount of uh, people in the public who believe that women and girls make false allegations of rape and abuse on a regular basis. So we know that in the UK, that tends to be less than 1% per year of reports that are seen as false allegations. But we know that because of media headlines in the last four to five years, the general public, when you survey them and ask them how many of these rape and domestic violence uh, allegations do you believe are real? 
they generally put the false allegation rate at about 30 to 40 percent. So the, we are changing the way that the public think about these types of crimes and about these victims through bad information. Um, and I don't think that's changed at all. I think I think you're right in that there's more. Um, I think it's happening more. So like a soap will do a storyline on CSE child trafficking or something like that. And then you've got another soap doing it on domestic violence. You've got another soap doing it. You know, I don't believe that they are purposeful. I've done a lot of work around those particulars, especially when I was working in those fields. And for those of us that work in that day in, day out, they tend to be essentially the most stereotypical, obvious plot line they could possibly have gone for. It doesn't necessarily represent people's experiences. If you are, say you're a victim of domestic abuse or sexual violence and you're watching a soap with that uh, plot line playing out, there is no evidence that somebody who is subjected to that can see that on the screen and go, that's what's happening to me. I've worked with women directly who will come into the rape centre and say, um, oh, have you seen that storyline about this woman on the a soap at the moment? Oh, she's so stupid. If I was in that situation, I'd just leave. And you think you're here because you are in that situation. And it's that they can't connect the two experiences that they can watch it on a screen and it's not real. It's not real. They're not connecting it to themselves. And that's why I'm so interested in the psychology of sort of blame uh, and and self-blame and shame and things, because even people who have been subjected to these crimes, they victim blame at the same rate as people who have never experienced them. So being subjected to these crimes doesn't actually make you have any higher empathy for other victims. It's a bit of a myth. People believe that if you've been through it, you would understand it. And that's not true. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me ask a question there. So you say if someone's had a traumatic experience, rape, or they've been sexually abused in some other way, that they don't have an understanding that can help somebody else. Is that your message? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying that the research shows that we victim blame at the same rate. So somebody who has never been subjected to, let's say, domestic or sexual violence will victim blame at the same rate as someone who has actually been subjected to it. So people make an assumption that if you've lived through it, you would have a better insight and therefore you wouldn't blame other victims. But that's not true. It's a myth. So when we do attitudinal testing and we do anonymous studies and you can ask people, have you ever been subjected to this versus have you not? And then you can do tests around, do they believe that victims are asking for it, that it's what they were wearing, that they should have told someone, that they brought it upon themselves, that, you know, that sort of thing. The attitudes amongst people who have never had that happen to them versus ones who say that they've actually been subjected to it, they sit at exactly the same rate. There's no statistical significant difference between those who have and those who haven't which is really interesting because what that suggests is that cultural norms and societal messages are actually more powerful than personal experience. That confuses me because I've always believed that somebody who has experienced trauma is better placed based on their experience to educate people about what can be done about it or how you can protect people from it or or help people who are going through the same experience that haven't come to terms with it or haven't reached that safe place. Am I thinking wrong? Is people who think like me thinking wrong? No, no, it's not that it's not wrong. It's that it's a generalization. So, of course, for some people who have been subjected to particular crimes, they 
would be best placed to tell us what have we done wrong? What could we do better? How can we improve the systems? You know, what went wrong in your case? How were you treated? And how, what were your experiences of that? But experience on its own is not what makes you good at that. So yeah, I've come across loads of people who have been subjected to all different forms of trauma, neglect, abuse, uh, and things that have happened in their lives. And it is not right for them. They are not the right person to go on and try and help other people, either because they've not processed their own stuff or because they hold views around it that are incorrect or they don't understand the topic enough to be able to express it to somebody else. If all you have is your personal experience, you are not necessarily best placed to do that. Some people are because, you know, they're critically minded. They go out and learn about things. They're open to different discussions and stuff like that. But years ago, I used to recruit therapists into sexual and domestic violence type roles. And it was my job you know, to interview them, to train them, and then to select them and decide who got the roles and who didn't. And it was so interesting how many people I came across who would would basically say, I've been through this and therefore I'm best, I will be best placed at doing it. And some of those people would have been very dangerous in those roles. Their experience is not enough. Whereas with some people, they had experience. They'd also done a lot of their own therapy and processing. They'd gone and got a qualification. They'd done education. They'd done a lot of reading or whatever. I also think that not everybody is suited to those roles, whether you have experience or not. I think there's still a lot of, there's still a lot of trauma that's carried by people. And, you know, that's not a stigma thing. It's something that you have to address and process. So if you don't, you are essentially what I would say, if you were a professional and you've not processed your own trauma and the things that you have gone through, you are being irresponsible. You should be focusing on yourself first before attempting to direct anybody else. Um, and that's an ongoing process because as we work through our jobs, you often get re-traumatized and re-triggered back to things. So you have to keep up with your own therapy and supervision and you have to be self-critical. You have to hold yourself to account. You have to know where your biases are. One of the things that I used to ask people and I still ask people now is uh, in interviews and stuff like that is I say to them, um, can you identify your biases? Like what biases do you have about particular groups of people? Are there any particular groups of people that you wouldn't want to work with? Are there any particular groups of people that make you uncomfortable? And anybody who answers me by going, no, I don't have any biases at all. And I don't have any views about, you know, any particular groups of people. And like, you know, I'm completely neutral about anyone. I don't take them on because they're not critical enough. They've not thought it through. You don't get through the world and not hold views, biases, experiences, fears, things like that. So if you cannot even critically identify them, then I don't want you doing this work. It's not necessarily just about experience, I guess. It makes a lot of sense that you don't take someone on just because they have experience. But, you know, if they come with a lot of other qualities or qualifications that make sense the victim focus works all over the world to change the way we perceive victims of abuse and trauma what, what do you mean by that what does victim focus do that others don't do so we are trauma-informed 
um, which means that we come at our work from a very specific theoretical perspective that all victims of crime who have been subjected to trauma have natural, normal, justified, rational responses and that their trauma does not constitute a mental illness, a disorder, a syndrome or any other form of disease or illness that requires treatment and instead they require trauma-informed approaches. Um, we are, you know, anti-oppression, anti-victim blaming. So in everything that we do, we look at, you know, is this particular intervention ethical? Does it harm particular people? Are there particular groups that are more privileged than others within this intervention? Does it seem to work for this group, but we've not even tested it on that group? You know, we're really quite evidence-based and critical. So we generally, for example, will be asked to go into an organisation or an authority or a government and they'll say, you know, we've, I don't know, we're doing this with these particular victims of crime. What do you think? Is it effective? Is this working? Could we improve it? Is there, you know, I've done the same in prisons where prisons have asked me to go in and they've said, this is how we're working. What do you think? And so it's for us really to look at and assess and then to give them advice to retrain professionals. Often we find some very, very dangerous belief systems. Racism is very common. Homophobia is very common. Misogyny is very common. And then sometimes you'll get these really strange little cultures that sometimes you find in these systems, in police, criminal justice especially. Uh, I remember being asked to go out to a particular police force that had asked me to deal with a, like almost like a culture, a set of biases that had grown amongst this force where they just hated children in care. And it had, it had grown over several years. So if the victim of crime was a child in care or the perpetrator of crime was a child in care, there was a very different attitude towards them. They were discriminated against, they were treated badly, they were ignored, their rights were ignored. And the DCI had asked me, you know, could you come in and find out what's going on? Because this is getting really serious. And I did some anonymous attitudinal testing and found that 88% of the police officers in that force felt that children in care were basically a drain on their resources and none of their business. So even if they'd been missing for several days and we didn't even know if they were dead, that particular police force was refusing to look for them because they said it wasn't their problem and they're just kids in care. And this was 2017. So every, so our job is to shift the way that they work, the way they think, the way that they perceive victims of crime um, and try to affect some change to make them, I guess, just do their jobs better is probably the best way of explaining it. And that might be anything from challenging victim blaming all the way through to, you know, challenging the pathologization of the people that they're working with. You yourself have experienced trauma. You yourself have been the victim of crime. How do you categorise your own experience with the work that you do today? Or how, how do you put that into context? And what can you share with us? Why are you up for sharing with us about your own personal experiences? And how do those experiences drive the work that you do today and the victim focus organisation that you've set up? I think people make, I think people do make an assumption that my work is related strongly to my own experiences when I was younger and other crimes that have been, you know, committed against me as I grew. 
when I was, I had a really normal childhood, really like super healthy and happy and, and no, nothing in the home, nothing bad happened or anything like that. And then we moved house when I was 11, when my parents uh, divorced, uh, still saw them both, you know, very sort of normal divorce. We moved house to an area that was a lot more dangerous. I don't think anybody knew that. Like it wasn't deliberate. It wasn't like, you know, and I just, honestly, it was just such a dangerous area to grow up in. And from 11 to 18, I was just, I've just literally been subjected to everything you can think of. And it was generally men and boys on the estate that I lived on. Just everything, sexual assaults, rape, trafficking, being drugged, being beaten up, being threatened to be killed, being thrown out of moving cars, just everything. It was a very, very dangerous time. There are a lot of times where I'm surprised I'm not dead. And that wasn't just me. That was like a culture where I lived, that a lot of girls in my year at school were living the same life as me. And it was very much ignored. You know, men were picking us up in cars from school. Nobody cared. You know, I, I went missing several times. I don't think anybody even looked for me. <laughs> um, so like, it was, you know, that is a part of my life that's very important to me because it has shaped me um, in loads of different ways. And I've done a lot of work. You know, I've had probably seven or eight years of therapy, which I I still attend now. Once, a, one, Usually, COVID's been a bit different, but once a month for three hours because the work that I do is hard. Um, and you can't ignore the fact that you've lived through stuff that potentially could trigger you. So I have to do a lot of work on that to just make sure that I'm still healthy and things like that. Um, and I, you know, I, I encourage professionals just to do that anyway. And then sort of got out of that uh, when I was 18 and then got into a long term relationship that was not necessarily violent maybe only there was violence a couple of times towards me but generally it was more like emotionally abusive psychologically abusive um and the more successful I got and the more important my career got the more the worse that abuse got and it got to the point where I got to about 25 26 and I was absolutely suffocated it was really difficult um and I was having to find a way to continue the work that I was doing whilst being subjected to that type of just constant bullying. That was really difficult. And then in between those times... Just just before you carry on, Jessica, how did you find yourself in those situations from the age of 11 through your, your teenage years? And was there nobody around to help guide you away, protect you? I mean, you talk about some serious offences, sexual assault, rape, trafficking being thrown out of cars, etc. I mean, was anybody brought to account for what happened to you? Do you hold yourself in any way responsible? I mean, what, what are we talking about here in the, the finer details? You know, what's your message? What are you saying to people? Okay, so you asked, was anyone held accountable? There was, there was one arrest and 13 charges, and that was pretty much... It's very complicated. It's a long story. But that was going to go to court when I was 19. And I waited a long time for that trial. The offences were very serious. It was at Crown Court. And then just before it was due to go to trial, it was dropped completely. The perpetrator who was charged in my case actually went on to be charged and convicted of those offences against five, five other girls. But my case was dropped. 
So I was really unlucky in that case because he could have been in prison before those other offences were committed. It's a shame, but I don't hold any responsibility for it. And that's one of my, I'm very interested in that, in that even as a teenager, I didn't blame myself ever. I, I very clearly understood that I was being subjected to these things and that it wasn't my fault and that I was terrified and that I, I understood that you shut your mouth and you yes, you are scared, but you don't say anything because it'll get worse. But I still, I don't blame myself for that either. I don't blame myself for getting completely stuck in it and not knowing how to get out. I don't blame myself for desensitising. I don't blame myself for having drink and drug problems. So I was, you know, I drank very heavily from about 12 till to about 17 um, and started um, smoking weed when I was 12, like 11 or 12. And I don't, I don't blame myself at all for any of those things because I was a minor. I was a child. You know, I couldn't get alcohol on my own. Other people were giving it to me. I've never bought drugs in my life. People were giving it to me. You know, these things were not my fault. And so if anyone's listening and they've gone through that, that's the most important thing is that you have to shift the blame back to the perpetrators. You don't own any of it. It doesn't sit with you. This was not your life choice. This is somebody else's active choice to do this to you. And I am really very interested in why I had that mindset, because that's not common. We know from the research, from academic research, that most people, about 80%, blame themselves. But I'm not in that 80%, and I don't know why, because I didn't have anybody around me guiding me. I didn't have anyone who believed me. I don't really know, and I don't know if I'll ever find the answer, but I've never blamed myself but I just don't know why. And that's, I have such an interest in that. And I wish I knew why it was, but I've just never had taken any responsibility for any of it. And I think that's why I am a lot more psychologically healthy than some people who have been subjected to that because I've never held any blame or shame around it. But is that, I mean, as an 11, 12 year old and as a kid, of course, you can't blame yourself for any of the traumas that happens to you. Um, or is inflicted on you by others because you're a kid and you know no better and you're you're treated. But when you get to teenage years, and I'm talking 18 upwards, you make choices. You know, I mean, it may be that you, and we go back to the point about normalization, you know, having a spliff, having a drink at the age of 18, it's all around you. So it just feels natural that you fall into that space or whether it's doing things that are illegal because it's all you know and it's all everybody else around you is doing, it becomes normalized. But people blame themselves, surely. And you often reference in, in our conversation, Jessica, academic research and, you, you know, these kind of desk paper pushing exercises that gathers information um, generally from from other people you know they go out there and they suck information from other people push it into a document and, and, and claim the report as being authoritative and the beginning and end all of what we should and shouldn't believe and and people take that as it or what other people what do you mean by other people because all of the research that I cite comes from survivors and victims so if their voice isn't the voice, exactly, the voice? but that voice is coming, and then it, in my view, that voice is then compiled by an academic who interprets the information that they've got from real lived experience. What you don't often have is those lived experience people writing those reports, gathering that information. It's always somebody sucking that information from them and then categorizing it in a report 
that others then take on and use as as their academic paper. But that's one point. My I, point. No, I agree with that actually. Like, I, and that's why the work that we do is so important because it is written by and peer reviewed by victims and survivors. So we have a, you know, everything that we do gets peer reviewed and gets critically evaluated by people who have been lived lived through these things. But I actually agree with you that academics and especially universities and institutions have a real bad reputation for going out into a community, gathering data from people that they'll never speak to again, listening to their life experiences and traumas, taking them away, uh, analysing them in a sort of hygienic environment away from that community and culture, writing it up, putting it in a paywall journal and never speaking to those people again. And those people can often never get to read uh, the study that they even con- contributed to because it's forty seven ninety nine to read it, um, which is why, you know, what we do is so different because we, we work against every single one of those principles. However, there is a lot of research that uh, we make sure that the things that we cite and the things that we work are often actually authored by NGOs and charities who have, those voices are real, they're unedited. So it's organisations that are grassroots go and getting those experiences, those real stories, real experiences, and then being able to communicate them so that, that we can use them as evidence to create change. But the point you're making about you know, academic research is absolutely correct. I don't have any arguments around that. But unfortunately, we live in a society that doesn't listen to survivors and victims. Unfortunately, it listens to stuffy academics in ivory tower universities. And that's the only reason everybody who knows me personally knows that I went and got a PhD. I went and got a PhD so that I could back with them because they're not going to listen to me otherwise, are they? If, you know, it's interesting that there is a classism issue here where if you've been subjected to these things and you have amazing ideas around how to change it, nobody gives a shit, nobody listens to you. But if you have a doctor at the front of your name, like I went and got, now all of a sudden I'm a genius. It's it's a re- it's a real classist thing. So there are, I would say though, that there are a lot of um, victims and survivors, however they want to identify, in these roles. There are a lot more. So, for example, 51% of social workers were abused in childhood. Um, And that's from a study in 2016 in the UK. So if you think 51% of professionals working in this field were actually abused in childhood, there's a lot of experience there. And then it's a lot harder to get that with people like me, like psychologists and academics, because you get this huge chunk of them from a very elite academic background that have genuinely not suffered neglect poverty harm trauma or anything their parents are professors they're a professor you know they they work at the university they did all their degrees at uh, they're on 80 grand a year and they don't know anything about you know harm or fear or anything and that that's real that does exist i've met professionals like that i've met academics like that but there is a lot more now i think of the working class and people who have been subjected to all different forms of experiences um, I follow quite a lot of academics on Twitter who have been in prison as well. You know, people who are like ex-offenders and have been there and have then come out, got degrees. Now they've gone into academia to try and change that space. But it is very difficult. I, I did that and it was uh, I was up against a lot of discrimination. I don't look the part. I don't sound the part. I'm covered in tattoos. I swear every third word I'm behaving on this podcast. But like I did not fit in to the department where I did my PhD at all. And they made that very clear. 
But then there's a balance, isn't it? Because you do want people like you swear every third word in that space as you do lived experiences, etc. But you also want 50% of that to be people like you say, professors who come from households where their parents were professors, etc. So you do get a, a, a balance. I think the balance is important. Otherwise, you only get one side of the story. And that can often be the story of lived experiences where you want people who who don't have those experiences, they have a more objective view. And therefore, you can find a real, I don't know, commitment and, and, and the answers some, sometimes. So what's your ultimate game? Now you've achieved the things that you've achieved. What's your ultimate game plan now? Um, I think that I'm a problem solver. So I'm very pragmatic and evidence-based and victim-centered, which is why I called Victim Focus, Victim Focus, because I want to focus on solving those problems and focus on the real experiences of those people. So what I've started to do now that I have more power, more platform, more money because of, you know, the work that we're doing and that we get paid to do is that I reinvest it in solving problems. So if, you know, if people are writing to me every week saying, did you know that this happens? Or did you know we don't have rights to this? Or did you know there's no access to this service? Or did you know there's no services for this group of people? We solve it. So um, if that means, you know, reinvested in research or reinvested in setting up an organization, reinvesting in online facilities, free resources, free services for people, then that's what we do. And that's what I'm going to focus on for the rest of the time that I have on the earth is basically solving the problems that I can see and then filling the gaps that I can see. So I recently set up the first ever service for children born from rape and sexual violence offences, because there are no services that exist of that kind, and um, a service for women and girls who become pregnant from rape, sexual offences and trafficking. Again, no services that exist of that kind, and yet that is um, a lot more common than we would like to admit. So um, we've just founded that charity and um, we have a helpline, a free helpline and a web chat facility. And that's all going to be funded. We've, you know, put all of our skills together, all of the knowledge that we've gained through research. So you just gave an example where it didn't make a difference. But if you do this process correctly, it does make a difference. So we went out found women and children who were subjected to these crimes who have been born from rape and sexual violence or have had babies from that from those crimes we asked them what was missing where did you go what did people say to you what did your gp say what did the midwife say what did the police say and then we put all of that together and then built an organization and a set of services that will go forward and help from this spring right similar in the we uh, found, for example, that there are certain assessments and ways of working with children in criminal exploitation and sexual exploitation where they're being treated in a particular way. So we did the research, we gathered all the evidence, and then we created a different intervention, a different way of working. And now we're going out to children's care homes, local authorities, police forces and saying, this is your solution. This is how you improve your practice. You need to stop treating children like this. So that's pretty much where I'm going. I'm doing that in lots of different ways. I do it through social media. I do it through books. So I have several books coming out because I had the first one, which is why women are blamed for everything. And then I've got another one due out uh, January and then I've got another one due out 2023. And then um, I'm doing a lot more TV work now. So I've just 
finished filming with several different production companies. And the reason that all of those different angles, including our research, including our consultancy, our training, the media work that we do, conversations like this so that people can listen to them, is because I want to create, if I'm going to create anything, if I die, I want to be remembered for creating debate and conversation that makes people consider that that they could do more to understand particular social issues, especially around uh, sexual and domestic violence. So that's pretty much what we're going to do. But I want to, I've been very lucky that the way that I set Victim Focus up and the, and the vision that I have for it is that we make money from taking on large contracts who need our expertise, but we don't spend the money like a company. We sort of keep it like a social enterprise and we reinvest it in solving problems, creating resources, apps, interventions, organizations, things like that. And that's the way that I want it to be. Well, good luck with the books that you're writing. I hope they reach the audience you want them to reach and beyond and the work that you're doing, you know, the organizations and programs and projects that you're setting up to try and help the people that you're trying to help. Because if anybody needs help, it's the people that you're, you're talking about. At the beginning of that, you, you mentioned helping children who were born out of rape. Am I allowed to ask the question, Jessica, that was an experience, a personal experience for you? And, and is what you do driven by your own experience? What can you tell me about that? It is, a, it, I guess it is a little bit. So yeah, that was, that is something that I was subjected to and something that is, you know, very personal to me. At the time, because of the normalization in society, I didn't understand that that's what had happened. It was only when the police interviewed me that I realized that that's what had happened and that I'd become pregnant from rape. And it's not, it's sort of the way that, that's why it's so important that we're able to do this type of work that shifts the way people understand these crimes. Cause I certainly didn't think that that's what had happened to me until a police officer sat me down and explained it. So. But there's the, there's the, sorry to interrupt you here, but there's the legal definition of rape. There's our, um, you know, society's perception of, of what it is. What, what are you talking about here? Because I, I, I get confused by it. It's clear cut, you know, consent is consent, not consent is not consent. But I mean, how do you explain that when you sort of say, you know, you only believe that you were raped and gave birth to your child once the police had explained that the crime had been committed? But did you yourself believe that that, that was what you had been through? I, d- I don't understand the complexities. I'm not sure where the confusion is because can, if if somebody doesn't consent, then it's rape. Right. So if I had been through, in my case, hundreds, maybe thousands of times where I definitely didn't consent, in some cases where weapons were being held to me or I was screaming and crying or being beaten up, then I would say that it's pretty clear that that's rape. However, because that was my life, and all the girls around me, and sort of everyone I knew, that's that normalization is that, you know, who do you look to if you think, is this normal? And then you look at your friend and think, oh, no, this is, yeah, this is normal. Everybody's being treated like that. And that's what I mean about where I grew up was very dangerous for some reason. The culture around misogyny there, the violence against girls there was just impossible 
to escape. So, in, you know, it was, yeah, like for my, for my experience, even though I knew I didn't want it, even though I knew that I was terrified, even though in some cases, you know, I was raped with scissors around my throat or a knife to the side of my neck or something like that, I still wouldn't have put the word rape on it as a teenager. I wouldn't because I didn't know anything about it. And I didn't... You, and do you, think, and do you think lots of girls are going through... A, sorry, um, Jessica, and do you think lots of girls are going through that same experience today? Yeah, I know they are. I mean, they obviously are, but I... Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's that... I, I, I just can't get... I can't get my head around it is, is the point that I'm trying to make. I just cannot get my head around. Maybe it's because of the world that I live in today uh, and out there in the darker places that we don't see unless, you, you know, we can shine a spotlight in some way. And by having these conversations, we are doing just that, that we can't, I can't get my head around the fact that there are women and probably young boys and men out there who have been subjected to those kinds of incidents. And I know it happens all the time, but where they don't understand what is happening to them, that they, they don't feel the confidence that they're able to report it, if not to the police, to an adult who could then act on their behalf. I just can't get my head around. We live in a world that that is like that. It's so scary, though, because the first thing that goes through your head is, are you going to be believed? Because there is so much disbelief, even still, even now, right now, there's so much disbelief. The, the first thing you do, whether you're a boy or a girl or a man or a woman, when you have been subjected to those types of crimes, you think, is anyone going to believe me if I tell somebody? And then the other thing that we know is very common is self-blame, is that initial sort of like, well, maybe it was my fault, or maybe I should have said no, Claire, or maybe I should have fought them off, or maybe I gave some sort of message that I wanted that. And you, you sort of toy with it uh, for such a long time. And we know that, you know, when you talk to victims and survivors of these types of crimes often if you say to them you know did you report and they say no and you say why and they say well because I didn't think anyone would believe it anyway or they'll say something like well I'd had a drink or I'd met them from a dating app or I'd done this and I th and I was going to be judged so I just decided not to tell anybody and then if you compound that with things like racism that you talk to women who, for example, are, I don't know, black, South Asian, Pakistani, you say to them, why didn't you report? And they say, because I can't, I can't deal with the racism on top of the judgment around being raped. I, I can't and I'm not going to do it. I would rather just, you know, some women will say, I'd rather just forget about it. Or some women will say, I'd rather just get therapy. Um, so, yeah, it definitely is common that people are going to either not know at all we call that acknowledgement. So they, they acknowledge or understand that they've been raped or abused. And that's for plenty of different reasons. But then even those who do and they get to that sudden realisation and think, I've been abused or I've been assaulted. You know, there's still that thing about, but do I report? Do I tell anybody? And even for me as a professional and someone working in this field, I was assaulted a couple of years ago. Um, and I spoke about it, but I, I didn't report it. I chose not to. I made an active choice not to report it because I've worked in the field long enough where I could literally plot out how that case was going to go. And I didn't bother. You know, it was in a bar, which means there would instantly be the assumption that I'd been drinking, which I hadn't. It's the sort of seen as like, oh, it's the nighttime economy sort of type of crime which wasn't true either because I'd only walked. It just there was so many things that I just knew would get used in his defence 
And then the fact that the key witnesses were the bouncers and the bouncers were protecting the perpetrator, I just didn't bother. I just didn't bother. And, you know... As you're, as you're sharing the story, I'm thinking to myself, the other side, the, the flip side to it all, which is you should have gone to the police, you should have reported it, you should have insisted that they investigate, you should have had the police do what they're supposed to do. And what what's really interesting, and it will be to women and men listening to your story, is what what do you do in those circumstances? You know, I mean, you, you've eloquently explained, Jessica, that you felt all the odds were against you for the reasons that you stated. But people shouldn't feel like that. Women in particular shouldn't feel that despite all the odds stacking that that makes you feel no one's going to believe me, nothing's going to be done, everyone's going to lie, die, die, die. shouldn't prevent women from stepping inside a police station and all those actors that you didn't feel would would respond to your the incident should be trained those bouncers in particular every bouncer should be trained that when a woman or a man reports an incident they should act instinctively but unfortunately we do live in a society where you know bouncers who stand on doors are only there to keep people from getting in rather than protecting people who are inside, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's, it's not right. And it's not fair. Look, I, I'm going to bring I was gonna this- say, well, if I can, like, I know that if you've got, I know that I don't know, you know, if you've got women listening to this, I can guarantee you that people will contact you afterwards and say that they've been in the same situation that, that they, they've been subjected to these things. And then when they've weighed it up, they've thought, What's the point? It's going to end up me on trial. And that's true. The cases that I deal with, you know, if you go back years ago when I was in the criminal justice system, that's exactly what would happen. There would be a very straight, what you would think on paper is a very straightforward crime. And yet the evidence and trial would end up about being discrediting the witnesses or the victim. I have worked in this system long enough to know that when I sat and logically went through all of the different ways they would gather evidence, the only thing that would have gone in my favour is CCTV. And I'd already looked and there was, an, there was a camera at the entrance and there was a camera at toilets, but there wasn't one where I was assaulted. So it would become about my statement versus the bouncers. The bouncers were clearly going to argue that I was lying or whatever, even though they watched it happen. And there's, that's a very like forensic way of looking at it, that I considered every single angle. There was no way I was going to get justice. It would have been a very traumatic process. We know from the research that 87% of women who report these types of crimes to the police wish they never bothered. And that was from like 2007, I want to say 17, but it might have been 15 in the UK that when they come out of that process, having reported it, they wish they hadn't done it because our systems are so harmful and traumatic, which is why there are so many pilots to get them to be better. So it's... it's, Well, I I concur. I concur. I concur entirely, Jessica. But then we do have a system which allows people to test the evidence because you can't have people standing in the dock being accused of a crime without them trying to challenge it. And so you can't take a person's word for it. And that's not me saying you can't take a woman's word in these cases. I mean, in any type of case, whether it's a theft robbery or or any other case without there being you know, substantial evidence in terms of that CCTV footage being inside the club. 
then it is your word against that individual's word. And then you've got to hope, as you rightly say, that the bouncers would do the right thing. But in your case, they were not doing the right thing. So, you know, the evidence has to be tested. And I'm a big advocate of that, obviously. But but it's sad to feel that if women continue and men continue to not press these types of cases, then we don't move forward. And it's 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 not fair to think that that they won't do it because they themselves become the victim when, and by that I mean the victim of the system, not believing them rather than the victim of the crime that was actually perpetrated. And that fear keeps them away from the court, increases the statistics that you quote in terms of this is how they feel and perceive justice to to be dealt, that they won't get a fair hearing, no one will believe them, etc. And how do you, I mean, for me it's frustrating because how do you move forward if we can't, you know, in your incident, come forward and say it happened to me and then let the system do it, things you're going to be traumatized by the neglect of the system, if you like, and people telling lies. It's a powerful message because it's such a it's not complicated, but it is complicated because how do you move through it uh, and forward? What's your final message to listeners? Because the stories you've shared with us are themselves quite traumatic. And I don't want people to come away from this thinking that if they find themselves in a similar situation to the last one you experienced or the earlier ones that you experienced, that they shouldn't be empowered to to stand up and report it and, you, you know, seek some kind of help in any way, shape or form. No one should be left in a situation where they feel helpless. It's one thing not understanding what's happening to you. It's another thing feeling helpless because everybody around you is not prepared to help you. So what would your final message be from a professional, practical and experienced point of view, Jessica? Um, that if you've listened to this and you recognise any of this, so that you have lived through it when you were younger or you're living through it right now, first of all, no matter what has been said to you or has been fed to you, it, none of it is your fault. You're not responsible for the actions of other people. Offenders make clear decisions to abuse and harm others. That is not on you. Nothing that they say makes it your fault. None of this means that you are to blame at all. And that can be really difficult, but you have to push all of that blame back on a perpetrator that they chose to behave in a particular way. And that isn't on you. And then secondly, about reporting, if you're listening to this and then thinking, God, I wish I'd never reported or I don't even know if I'm going to ever report now. My advice is that it is to everybody is educate yourself first, make an active, informed decision about whether you want to report or not and get advice. So you can talk to charities anonymously about crimes that have been committed against you. And then you can find out whether you think you want to report nobody will put any pressure on you especially if you contact you know domestic violence and sexual violence charities they are trained not to put pressure on you to report and instead to work you through what that might look like what you're scared of what the risks are and then you can make a decision about whether reporting is the right decision for you and that could be a crime that happened to you 30 years ago or a crime that happened to you yesterday so that's you know it is in, in my view, it's all about your well-being and what's in your best interest and making a choice for you and not feeling pressured to make a decision, you know, on behalf of somebody else. 
Thank you very much, Jessica. And I hope people act on what you, you, you say, because it's a sad state of affairs that people are having to live with past traumas or, or the victims of crimes. And they want to do something, but don't feel empowered to do something, don't know what to do. So thanks for that advice. And thanks for sharing your story with me today. Is there anything I've not asked you that you want to say before I end this podcast, Jessica? No, I don't think so. I think we covered loads. We have. Well, look, thank you for your time. Thanks for sharing your insights and your own personal story. Thank you. Dr. Taylor's insight was both interesting and educational. Sexual violence is never an easy topic to discuss. And if you felt affected by today's conversation or want to learn more, then consider getting in touch with Jessica's company, Victim Focus. Thanks for listening to this podcast and please share and follow us on social media. It would be great if you could rate and review on the site where you listen to this podcast. If you want to support or advertise on this podcast, please get in touch. If you think I should get someone on the show, drop me a direct message via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest booker is Tegan Parsons. And me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.